Today's program is brought to you by Firesider, a health tonic based on the traditional New England cure-all of raw apple cider vinegar and honey. For more information, visit firesider.com. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sharp and Hot. I am your host, Emily Peterson, joining you live from Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This is episode number 115. We have a jam-packed and exciting show today. Joining me in the studio after the break will be Ida Blue and Binky Griptight and John Gill. They are here to perform live in the studio. But before we get to that, my first guest is food editor at the New York Times. Sam Sifton joins me by phone to talk the internet phenomenon that is the Mississippi Roast. Hi, Sam. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. So for those who might have missed it, can you catch us up on what has happened since you published The Roast That Owns the Internet? Well, it's been kind of crazy. I've been cast in a couple different roles by the crowds of people who have been making or not making this dish. Either I'm a horrible elitist snob who has highlighted some terrible white trash cooking and deserve to be burned in a world of uh, New York Times liberalism and awfulness, or... I'm a, you know, a redneck uh, who loves this kind of food. And maybe I'm a little bit of both. Uh, it's, yeah. a, it's a really terrific recipe that I hope a lot of people will cook. How did it come to your attention in the first place? Well, we were uh, talking at the office one day, and one of my colleagues, who's a graduate of Ole Miss, said something about cooking Mississippi roast over the weekend, and the name alone uh, piqued my interest, and I said, Mississippi roast, what's that? And she described it, a pot roast put in a slow cooker with a stick of butter, uh, some of that packaged au jus gravy mix that I didn't really know existed, another package of something I didn't know existed, which is dry ranch dressing mix, and a handful of pepperoncini. And for whatever reason... It, it piqued my interest, and I thought, huh. And so I made it, and it was, it was pretty outstanding. Um, however, as the food editor of the New York Times and as a guy who doesn't really like those uh, packaged ingredients very much, I wondered how hard it would be to make without using packaged ingredients. So I made it. Uh, and it was even more outstanding. And then I was like, where the hell did this come from? And I spent a long time reporting that out, and I tracked it down to a small town in northern Mississippi, Ripley, Mississippi, and, and found uh, the lovely uh, women there who had kind of developed the recipe and, and eventually put it in a church cookbook, and someone had blogged about it, and it, someone put it on Pinterest, and it, and it took off, and it was a genuine hit. And I thought... Let's trace that history back and, and alert our readers to it. So last week you were on The Front Burner, which is another show here on Heritage Radio Network, The Front Burner with Jimmy and Andrew, and it was an excellent conversation between yourself as a food critic, restaurateurs, chefs, and there was this conversation about the the dialogue, and does the dialogue have to exist between the chef in the restaurant and the food critic? And I'm wondering if, you, if you're feeling the same thing between the writer and the readers. Like, have you dialogued with the people who are calling you names? 
Oh, absolutely I have. I think it's great. You know, we have on nytcooking.com attached to the, each recipe are, are a series of notes from users of, uh, of NYT Cooking. And attached to our articles at nytimes.com are comments. And I have a Twitter account, at Sam Sipton. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Pinterest. I'm on Instagram. And on all of these channels, I've got readers reaching out to me to talk about their own experience with the dish, to call me out on my apparent biases or what have you. And I'm delighted to talk with them. I think that the more we talk about the food that we're eating and why we're cooking what we're cooking and eating what we're eating, the better uh, life is. That's a very different equation than, you know, a, a so-called dialogue between um, restaurateurs and, and restaurant critics. It's much more intimate. It's much more valuable, I think, uh, to, to our readers and our users. And I'm really delighted to take a part in it. And is it unique to this recipe or does this happen each week when the food section comes out? Oh, golly, it happens every time I publish a recipe, every <laughs> time the Times publishes a recipe. There's already always someone's mom makes it different, which you can take to mean better right. than, than we do. Uh, and there's always a discussion to be had about why X and not Y, or why this method and, and not another, why this recipe and, and, and not another. And as I say, we're delighted to engage in that conversation because it leads people to talk about food and we hope to cook it. So what are some of the passionate pro, pro Sam Sifton things that people have said? Well, <laughs> I'm... I'm a modest fellow. <laughs> they call me a god. No, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a modest fellow. Like, you know, people like the food. They say they like the food. I think that's terrific. That's what we're here to do. And when they don't like it, oftentimes, you know, if you dial into it a little bit and ask a few questions, you discover that, you know, they didn't make the lamb stew recipe. They substituted tofu for the lamb and honey for the vinegar, and they didn't get a result that they liked. Well. Right. Look to yourself, doctor. Right, and you—I will say—you do say in the in the original article that I have in the print version in front of me that it's good. It's terrific. Yeah. It's a really interesting, very simple, super housewifey, you know, super set it and forget it kind of recipe. But with all that fat and all that salt and all that acidity, it can't help but be kind of delicious. Right. right. Anyone who's heard it starts, but my father has a famous saying. If he, sa he says, if a recipe calls for a butter and sticks, you know it's going to be good. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, listen, I'll tell you this. If you talk, you go on the line at Roberta's right now and you ask, you know, what makes restaurant food tastes better than a lot of home-cooked food, it's going to end up being butter and salt. So right, butter, salt, let's and heat. Em let's embrace it. So um, I, I completely 100% agree with you. So let's walk through what someone who is hearing this for the first time is going to NewYorkTimes.com and searching Mississippi Roast. How would they recreate what you've done at home in the most efficient way to get to a product that doesn't start with packet gravy and packet right. Ranchers. It's dead simple. First of all, the recipe is available at nytcooking.com. If you go to nytcooking.com and search for Mississippi Roast, it'll pop right up. But I'm happy to tell you how to do it right now. You can do it in a slow cooker or you can do it in a covered Dutch oven in a low oven, like a 250, 275 degree oven, covered. So we've got a roast, probably a chuck roast, let's say, and we're going to cover it aggressively with salt and pepper and a little flour. We're going to sear that off in a pan to create a good tight crust on it, which is going to help create the gravy. 
and we're not going to therefore need packaged gravy mix. We'll put that fellow into the slow cooker or into the Dutch oven and put on top of it half a stick of butter. I don't think we need to go with the full stick of butter. Then we'll add the pepperoncini. Now, in the traditional recipe, you would then dump the powdered ranch dressing on top. But golly, do we really have to do that? No, we don't have to do that. We can make a kind of quick cheat of a, of a couple tablespoons of, of ranch dressing by combining, uh, let's say, a tablespoon of mayonnaise and, and some buttermilk if we have it or not, just some milk cut with lemon juice and let this sit for a little while good shake of uh, dry or fresh uh, dill to go in there, a little salt and pepper. And I add, just because, you know, I'm that snobbish guy from the New York Times, just a little, little bit of paprika, and then put that in there into the slow cooker as well. Let it run, 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 six hours, seven hours. It would be a little less if you're doing it in a Dutch oven in your, in your regular conventional oven. And then shred that thing apart, serve it over noodles, put it on a Kaiser roll, Geez, you could do anything with it. That's a, it. It just and it sounds amazing. And as someone who lives part of her life as a housewife, I'm like, I can do that. And in some of the comments that people post, it's like, well, you must be a snob because you have dried dill. It's like you, you're going to the store anyway. Just get some dried dill. <laughs> well, this drives this drives me insane. One of the one of the big debates that was going on was whether in calling for the preparation that I just described to you, which takes about ten minutes. I was somehow denigrating working women who would much more easily and much more happily just dump the packaged goods on top of them, on top of the meat and, and call it uh, a day. Now, I, I don't buy that. I don't think that life is measured mostly in 10 or, or 12 minute uh, uh, increments. I also don't buy this notion that any of us as housewives or house husbands or working fathers or working mothers or, you know, lazy slacker boyfriends or girlfriends, you know, really is going to put anything in a slow cooker and walk away for a New York work day. In New York, we don't work for six and seven hours. We work for eight, nine, ten hours. So the idea that this thing is really going to be, you know, something that you set up before you go to work and it's going to be okay when you get back from work is a falsehood. For the most of us, this is going to be a weekend recipe, or if you happen to have a split schedule and you're, and you're you know, free in the afternoons going into evening, it's a six, seven, eight-hour job. It's not longer than that. And I don't know about you, but six, seven hours is not the amount of time that I'm at work, and it's not the amount of time that most working New Yorkers I'm aware of are at work. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. And it, I just want to take the conversation to a slightly different place in terms of how things are modernizing. When I have the print piece in front of me and I read it, I can't respond to you. But in the world of Twitter and Instagram, people can respond instantly. It sounds to me like you love that progression to have that interaction with people. And I'm, I'm curious. Absolutely. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, absolutely. I do. I think, you know, the, the vast majority of our readers are coming to us not even on their work desktops, but on their on their phones. Uh, they're sitting on the B61 and reading food content. We call it food content. Isn't that kind of millennial of me? <laughs> they're reading the food section on, on, on the phone, and they can tap on my byline, and they can send me a love letter, I hope, or a, or a nasty note. I rue, but it happens. 
And, you know, that's probably a good thing. They can click over to Twitter, and there I am at at Sam Sifton. You can call me a jerk or call me a king. I, I, you know, it, doesn't, it, it, it creates a conversation that I think allows us all to be part of a community of, of good food and good eating and good cooking that, that is probably good for society. So do you think that's the direction that food writing is going in? Well, obviously, things are moving aggressively online. It's one thing, you know, I love looking at the print section of the New York Times food section. I cherish it when, you know, a new issue of Lucky Peach comes out and I can sit down on the couch and and read it. But, you know, let's be straight. The, The New York Times has made a serious commitment to food journalism as a kind of service to its readers and and users, and we are well aware that that service is going to be availed, uh, uh, is going to be used on phones. And I want to make it really simple for people to access our journalism, access our recipes, access the recipes that our readers love and have saved to their recipe boxes when they want them on the devices that they use. It's so progressive, and I like. I love hearing someone in your position articulate that because when you hear someone say it, it's like, why would you argue for anything else? Yeah, I mean, look, I don't want to take anything away from the people who want to read the, the paper. I don't want to take. I don't ever want to take away the ability of of a reader to to go to one of our articles on a on the desktop and hit print. Um, I love printed words, and I love printed recipes. Um, but let's, let's be straight. Um, we live our lives a lot of the time through those phones, and if the New York Times isn't there to deliver our recipes, which we think are awesome recipes, and we spend a lot of time reporting them out and developing them and testing them and putting them there, if you can't get them when you're, you know, waiting for the train, that's a problem. So we want to make it available to you. So for people who are listening who fantasize about becoming food writers someday, what's a piece of advice you would give them? Well, I got to say from I've said this a lot. It's it it's an awkward thing to say, but the the business of being a a a a food writer is really the business of being a reporter. It's the business of being a writer, and that has to take precedence. If you're going to cast yourself immediately into into this what could potentially become a ghetto for you, uh, that's a problem. Uh, the, the craft of, of reporting and the craft of writing is a learnable craft, same as, as cooking. And if you want to, you know, specialize in, in, in the area of food, well, go to. But make sure that you, you know, are doing all the other stuff that you would need to do if you were a business reporter or a cops reporter or, or writing about the environment, because uh, that will hold you in good stead um, as your career moves forward. If you're just going to write about, you know, muffins and fried chicken, um, it, it's not going to end well. It's excellent sound advice. Um, I have one last question that goes back to the pot roast. Is it true? I'm sorry, the Mississippi roast. Oh man, I'm gonna now. I'm gonna get the angry letters. <laughs> Is it true that the island of Manhattan was basically sold out of ranch dressing and powdered gravy this past weekend? Well, it's pretty interesting. I did hear from some buyers at, at smaller markets um, this week asking for heads up. Uh, in the in the future, when we publish recipes, we thought um, might might do well. Um, Can you and, do that? Is that realistic? 
Yeah, it is realistic. It's been true, I think, in, in some precincts since practically the days of Craig Claiborne, that when the Times publishes a recipe that strikes a chord, people want to go out and make it. I think that's probably a good thing. I think, you know, that... that we can have a world in which people are, on Sundays are discussing uh, the crossword puzzles that they all did in the Times Magazine. Well, I'd like them to be talking about the Mississippi roast or the cassoulet or you know whatever recipe it is that we've we've published that week that we hope we hope will strike a chord. And do you have any uh, special plans for what you're going to make for the Super Bowl? Are you, do you care about the Super Bowl? I care deeply about okay. the Super Bowl, and you can read in the New York Times, in your print edition of the New York Times on, on Wednesday, uh, everything that I've got to say about it. No, I, I, we've got a great collection of, I think, close to like 75 great recipes for the Super Bowl. I've just... Um, I've dropped. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna be like a rapper now. I just dropped a new track called <laughs> "Loaded Nachos," that uh, uh, gives us a strong loaded nachos uh, recipe to go with our pulled pork nachos recipes, with all our, our varieties of chicken wings, our chilies, our stews, our cheese steaks, our burgers, our ribs. It just goes on and on. It's kind of a sick holiday, um, but you know, maybe at least for the dudes, it may be um, you know second only to uh, Thanksgiving for um, gluttony. Yep. I look forward to the, the Super Bowl for exactly that reason. I, I enjoy watching the football game, but I'm much more in it for the food. Yeah, that's and, you know, if the food is good, maybe it'll take take us away from the pain of watching cold play at halftime. <laughs> and who's going to win? Mm, that's not the journalist's job. No <laughs> cheering in the press box. <laughs> See, and I'm only 99% sure I even know who's playing, so I'm not going to embarrass myself by trying to make a prediction. There you go. <laughs> Sam Sifton from the New York Times, thank you so much for your time. Listeners can find you in the New York Times food section every week at Sam Sifton on Twitter and Instagram. And I truly appreciate your commitment to this work that you have in front of you. Thank you. We're all together on the path to the delicious. <laughs> that is a great mission statement. Thank you so much, Sam. After, after the break, we come back with Ida Blue and Binky Griptite and John Gill on guitar. We'll be right back. And today's break music provided by Keto. We'll be right back on Sharp and Hot. Today's program was brought to you by Fire Cider. Did your grandmother ever tell you to drink raw apple cider vinegar? It's good advice, and more common than you may think. For generations of New Englanders, a tot of vinegar was a morning ritual. Taken daily, a tablespoon of unfiltered apple cider vinegar can help support immune function and digestive functions. 
To the base of certified organic apple cider vinegar, Firesider added whole raw certified organic oranges, lemons, onions, ginger, horseradish, habanero pepper, garlic, and turmeric. They let this mixture steep for six weeks at room temperature to preserve the living vinegar culture and delicate flavors of the ingredients. Lastly, they blend a generous helping of raw wildflower honey into the mix. The result is potent but balanced, offering layers of sweet, tart, and spice. Firesider tastes great on its own or as an addition to tea, juice, or salad. Firesider ships direct from their online store and is available at over 500 locations nationwide. Use their store locator to find one near you and ask for a free sample. For more information, visit firesider.com. Welcome back to Sharp and Hot, everyone. I am Emily Peterson, your host, coming to you live from Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. One of my very favorite things that we get to do occasionally here is have live music in the studio. We are going to have a blues session. Ida Blue and John Gill, welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. (laughs) Uh, And also joining me is Binky Griptight. Welcome. You are a very prolific musician. You have played with Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. You have done all sorts of amazing musical work. Yes. Thank you for coming to Roberta's. Thank you for having me here at Roberta's. You are all going to play together in New York City at the Bitter End on February 12th at 8 p.m. So I'm going to turn it over first to Ida and John. You guys are going to play a song. We're going to play a song. Awesome. We're going to play some blues for you. I'm so excited. (laughs) Are you ready, Mayday? This first song is called Falling Down Blues. It's a Furry Lewis tune.
got the blues so bad, it hurt my feet to walk. Well, it hate so much, but it hurt my tongue to talk. Some people say the weary blues ain't tough. Oh, some people say. The weary blues ain't tough. Well, if they don't kill you, hell, you mighty rough. He caught the rumbling, I caught the falling down. He caught the rumbling, or I caught the falling down. Oh, I never seen him, never turned around. Oh, I never seen him, never turned around. Woo! Can I clap? I feel like I'm like the saddest single clapper. <laughs> clap it out. That is amazing. I am forever in awe of people who can sing like that and have such control and with another human being playing another instrument and you cannot look at each other and have that language and make that happen is I have like chills. Thank you. Amazing. Thank, Thank you. you. Hey, so Binky, you've warned me that this song is dark. Well, you know. It wasn't a warning. It was, an, I, it was a, hey, heads up. This is going to be awesome. You know, it's, it's, it's blues. You, you know, know, the blues mean? are the blues. I'm excited. Sometimes people die. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes we laugh about it. (laughs) Well, actually, all the time people die. And that's like, that's the whole point of it is just like, we all, we're all here to do the same thing. It's like, we're here for a moment. You shoot your shot, get what you can get, and then peace out. Um, So this song is about, uh, it's about not having a tuned guitar. This song is called uh, Suicide Blues or something like that. Shall inherit the earth. Must be talking about that hole in the ground. Three times, you know, uh, 
come up twice. Well, now I want to get to heaven. Cause I hear it's so goddamn nice. Tell me why. If heaven's so damn good, then why you scared to die? I am in awe of you guys. I truly appreciate it. So if people want to come and watch you perform live, Ida Blue, how are they going to do that? Uh, they can certainly go to my website. The ticket link is there, MissIdaBlue.com, M-I-S-S-I-D-A-B-L-U-E, like the color blue, dot com. Um, and you can check me out there, too. And you will be playing live at the Bitter End. The Bitter End is in New York City. It's on Bleecker Street. On Bleecker Street, one of the re- sort of remaining live music venues. Yeah. Uh, and then you're going to go to Madison, Wisconsin, I saw on your tour dates. I have friends out there who are probably listening, so I would encourage you to go to Madison. Um, and... Binky, you are playing the Bitter End show also? I am opening the Bitter End. Um, Going to be playing, I think, 30 minutes in front of Miss Ida Blue. Um, and it'll be some you know, stuff like that. Uh, but I think I'll have a band, too. Um, I should probably call some guys. <laughs> but, uh, call some friends. <laughs> yeah. Keep it a casual. Yeah. And for people who can't come to the show because they are fung far and, wi- far and wide around the world, how can they find out more about you? Uh, well, you know, I do all the social media stuff a, a little bit anyway, you know, Instagrams and the Facebooks and Twits, uh, <laughs> Binky Griptite, B Griptite, uh, and also they can easily keep up with Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. That's still my full-time job um, and family. So we're doing that. Gonna We have this gig at um, this place in Manhattan. Um, uh, Madison Square Madison Garden. Garden. That one, yeah, Whoa! yeah, that one. Um, Amazing. No, we're, we, we gotta, we're opening for Hall & Oates. That's awesome. On the 19th. But first, I'll be at the Bitter End. The Bitter End is the place to be. On February 12th. The very legendary Bitter End. Very legendary. Very exciting. Um, I really want to be there, but I have a three-year-old, and so my... It's all ages. I know, but my late-night 
going out has been seriously curbed. So we like make a note of all the things we're going to do, and he has like sleepovers. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I would like, love I to bring up with a babysitter. I might bring. Probably. Maybe I'll just bring a babysitter to walk around the block. And That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> that works too. Yeah, it's fine. You know. So the show is at the bitter end on February twelfth. Eight p.m. Tickets and more information at missidablue.com. Miss Ida Blue, you're going to take us out? I'll take you out. All right. Amazing. (laughs) Thank you all for coming. I'm going to say goodbye here to my listeners. If you want me to send you a cookbook, hashtag a photo uh, that you place on Instagram with Sharp and Hot. I have a a whole bunch that went out in the mail yesterday. It's a super exciting way for me to get to know you guys and look at your feeds and see what you post pictures of. Some of them aren't even food, and that's cool, too. Um, but I really love getting to know you, and I love going to the post office because the ladies there are super nice, and they're like, someday I'm going to listen to your show. I'm like, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anytime you want to get in touch with me, I am at Chef Emily P on Twitter. You can email me, Chef Emily, at sharpandhot.com. Until next week, everyone, keep playing with fire and knives. <laughs> that's my favorite thing. To play with. That's <laughs> why so I became a chef. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you so much for having us today. This has been really super awesome. Um, show's going to be great. CDs, tickets. Anyway, this song is called um, Got to Make a Change. And uh, it goes a little something like this.
Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.